Hello, my friends, and welcome to PM School, an educational platform for women entrepreneurs aspiring to start, scale, and exit epic businesses. I'm your host, Steph Caldwell, businesswoman by day, personal development author, founder, and investor by PM. Come with me each episode as we go behind the scenes with epic entrepreneurs and with the epic experts who support them along their way. So grab your glass of wine, grab your biz bestie, because it is about to get real. Are you ready? Pull up your seat because class is in session. Welcome to another episode of the PM School Podcast. On this episode, our guest, Lauren Schulte-Wang, is the CEO and founder of Flex, which she founded because she simply wanted to help people with periods thrive. She was struggling with some of the period care products in her own life, and it led her to creating some of the most game-changing menstrual products on the market. She and her team believe in a world where vagina isn't a bad word, where trans men and non-binary bleeders are part of the conversation and where nobody is turned away from essential period care due to their financial situation. So Lauren emancipated herself from her family at 15. She paid her way through college by working full-time in high tech and was ultimately inspired by a dear friend to finally go after her big idea of starting a better-for-you period care company. In this episode, we talk about her journey scraping together more than $50,000 over multiple years and multiple jobs to ultimately bootstrapping the first days of Flex before going through Y Combinator, Silicon Valley's iconic mainly tech incubator, and then thoughtfully raising over $7 million to help the world have better periods. I am personally obsessed with both Lauren and my Flex products, and I know you will be too. So let's get straight to the episode. Here's my conversation with Lauren Schulte-Wang. Lauren, it's so amazing to have you on the PM School Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Steph. So our favorite question to ask our guests when they first come on is, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted, you're going to laugh. I wanted to be the president of the United States of America. Wait, it's not something to laugh about. It's amazing. (laughs) Well, I wrote this survey in fifth grade and my dad recently found it where I outlined like all the reasons why I wanted to be the first, like be the president. And in my little fifth grade mind, I wasn't thinking like there's never been a female president. Didn't even cross my mind. And this is in like 96, 97. And I remember reading this essay to my parents in the living room and they just kind of smiled and looked at each other and they looked they looked at me and they said, oh, sweetie, that's so cute. But, you know, you just learned all the presidents in school. Have there ever, has there ever been a girl president? And what are you talking about? Like, what? Like, maybe you should, maybe you should aim to be speaker of the house. There's never been, you know, a female speaker of the house. And maybe you should, you should aim for that. And, you know, they're not exactly Nancy Pelosi fans. Let me put it to you that way. Yeah, it, it was pretty shocking and disheartening to me at the time, but that, yeah, I was really interested in politics at a young age. Wow. That's so interesting. We actually, this is 
crazy that we have this in common. When I was in third grade, I wrote a letter to the White House about race discrimination in my classroom. And my goal at the time was like, how can I completely change the education system so that people that weren't, you know, afford the opportunities that I was in life, you know, were able to. And so, and it's so funny because I have a letter the White House wrote back and <laughs> it was, it was kind of like a, you know, like a thank you for writing in, you know, like a printed note but they hand addressed the envelope, which felt like very personal. Yeah. That's super sweet. And did you keep it? I did. And actually, as as I started building this business, I reached out to my mom. I was like, do you still have that letter from the White House? Because she framed it because it was like so notable. And and I keep it as a reminder of, you know, kind of my mission and and what I want to do in this world. Absolutely love that. I love that you were so socially conscious at such a young age and that you took that initiative. Yeah, and that they well, wrote you back, and that you still have the letter. That's so cool, right? And that you are, you know, still potentially going to run for president someday. And I can't wait for to to see where that takes you. <laughs> never say never, Steph. Never say never. Maybe I'll start something like a little more local, like a school board. There you go. Well, I I have this this theory that like we can only achieve the dreams that we let ourselves dream. So. I say to everybody, like, dream as big as you can possibly, you know, dream because you won't out achieve, you know, where you let yourself dream to. I love that. Couldn't agree more. So, okay. So you wanted to be the the president of the United States. And then you were like, maybe I should go and get an education. I think that you went to Georgia state. What did you study in school? Yeah, I went to Georgia State University. I studied marketing. I got kind of like a non-traditional background. Uh, My parents weren't, you know, big proponents of education. They kind of, they, they didn't graduate from college. They didn't really care if I went to school. I'm the oldest of five kids. And frankly, they didn't have enough money to put five kids through school. So they were like, maybe just finish high school and get a job. I started working at a really young age. My family didn't have a lot of money. So I was working to support my family as early as 10 with odd jobs. I know that's pretty common, but I got my GED Mm -hmm. and I went from being an AP student to getting my GED. And then I got my first full-time job at IBM at that time. And I was basically leveraging skills that I had taught myself through odd jobs of building websites back when you used to like hand code HTML. I had real clients. I was building websites as a teenager. And so at 19, I landed that full-time job at IBM and I started going to school at night at a community college. And then I eventually transferred to Georgia State University. And since at IBM, I was doing marketing, I figured... I'll just get my degree in marketing. And I thought I'll get my degree in marketing and then I'll become a lawyer because I knew that lawyers made a lot of money and we were financially insecure. And like working full time to put myself through school and having a full ride scholarship, you know, I had to pay for my books and rent and food and all those other things. It really, I think, set a very strong foundation of working super hard to work, you know, 40 to 50 hour work week and go to school at night as a young person is is quite a lot. But halfway through undergrad, I, I started working at Coca-Cola and got even more marketing skills. And at the time that I graduated, I had had friends ahead of me in my age group who had already graduated law school. And they were like, you're making more money than we are. You're having a lot more fun than we are. You don't need all this student debt. You don't have, I had like almost no student debt. They're like, you should just keep doing this career marketing. And so I just kind of kept on with it. Well, this, this story is honestly like, 
I can only imagine the amount of weight like you carried your entire life, both carrying your family, carrying jobs, carrying education and getting to, to where you've gone. What I like, maybe, maybe share a little bit about the experience going, going through all of that all at once. Like, what did that teach you about yourself? What did it teach you about like how you show up as a person, both like in your life as well as in business? Well, I always felt very behind, you know, I didn't get kind of like the college experience. I became actually emancipated from my parents at 15. So I really didn't even get a lot of the high school experience. And so I looked around me and I saw all these people I grew up with having a lot of fun, going to parties, you know, going to sports games, things like that. And I did a little bit of it, but I really didn't have time for it. But for me, it was always about following my heart, following my dreams. And two things like number one, an education and number two, financial independence were to me, the keys to security, emotional security, financial security. And like, once I kind of crossed the chasm and you know, realized that I could be financially independent. I didn't need to rely on anyone. I had that college degree. I had been working a full-time job for a number of years. It was time for me to get out of Georgia. <laughs> I moved to California. And I found that when I moved to California, I really resonated. The people that I met really resonated with me because I felt like California was a place for people with dreams and ideas where people would talk a lot about ideas, not necessarily business ideas, but artists and and creators and musicians. And I felt in Georgia, at least in the people that were in my immediate circle, there's like a lot of talk about other people. There's a lot of talk about family. There's a lot of talk about church and none of those things are bad or wrong or anything. I just, I wanted a little bit more of a balance in my life. And I found that in California. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's such a, the impact that environment makes on the the size of ideas that you allow yourself to tackle, you know, or, or contemplate or have conversations around is just so different. So, so there's like a lot of, there's a confluence of things that I'm, I'm sensing are happening all at once for you in your early career. It's, it's one, you've had all of this incredible experience already at such a young age, like hand coding websites when it was HTML and CSS. And then, and then your work with IBM, like one of the biggest, you know, most well-known technology companies in the world, your work with Coca-Cola, and then this move to California that exposes you to an entirely different environment with different types of people. How does this ultimately start shaping your career and start shaping maybe, maybe this nudge that you get to, to become an entrepreneur? Yeah. So I, to be totally clear, I had no desire to be an entrepreneur, like zero desire to be an entrepreneur. Like I said, like struggling financially was always like the, like I just never wanted to do it. I knew it was super risky. Had met a lot of entrepreneurs who had tried and failed. To me, I think I, I started meeting people who are solving really interesting problems that nobody else was paying attention to. I did a brief stint in nonprofit because I really cared about doing work that created impact. That's something that I really didn't feel that I had at Coca-Cola or at IBM. And so if you kind of drew the only kind of consistent line other than marketing throughout my career is going closer and closer to impact. And so I knew that I wanted to work. I'm like, okay, now I have a stable salary and a stable job. I want to do something with impact. Then I started meeting these other entrepreneurs who were solving really cool problems. And the most successful ones that I met with multi-billion dollar companies were 
tackling like really big, really hairy issues that nobody else is paying attention to. And I had this one really obvious issue in my life. I had been getting yeast infections for 15 years. And it wasn't until I moved to California that I actually had a doctor that was like, Hey, (laughs) I'm not writing you another prescription for yeast infection medication until you quit using tampons that I ever really thought about my problem as a problem that could be solved as a problem that was worthy of talking about as a problem that other people might experience as a problem that needed to be solved. And so I had this multi-year you know, journey where I'm trying and testing out different period products. And really the, the only options I could find were tampons and pads. And DivaCup at the time wasn't even like a known thing. Eventually I came across a menstrual cup many years later, but this kind of in the back of my mind, I kept thinking like, I need to find someone that will start a company that will create a product for me. And so this is really embarrassing to say, but I started asking these entrepreneurs, all of whom were men, Uh Hey, I have this idea for a company. Like I want to make a more healthy period product for everyone. I want a product that isn't disruptive to our lives, that won't cause infections, that is more sustainable, that is more healthy. I will be your head of marketing. <laughs> you can be the CEO. And they would just like laugh, like laugh. So like I'm running my own, like I'm already a CEO. I'm running my own company. Like you're perfectly capable of doing this, Lauren. And I, and I, I just, I didn't believe them. It took me years before I actually, you know, built up the confidence to go out there and actually start this thing. Was there a moment that like changed something for you? Because I think that that actually holds a lot of women back is we have these ideas, we share them with friends. Maybe we don't necessarily see ourselves as like the the founder CEO type, but you know, we've got great marketing experience and would just love for somebody else to solve the problems. So we could go to work for them. Was there ever, you know, a moment or a conversation that you had that kind of changed the equation for you? Yes, there was one very specific moment. I was, I had a very dear friend named Dan and he was training to climb Mount Everest for the second time. And the first time he, the, the, yeah, the mission was failed. And I was a big, I, I still am a big time runner, but at the time I was doing 12 plus mile runs. So he was doing his cardiovascular training with me in San Francisco And I remember on a run, he said, Lauren, I'm starting this company and I really want you to be the CEO. And he knew about my idea for Flex. He had known about it for, for, since I first met him. And I, it it was that moment where I was like, oh my gosh, if this guy thinks I can be the CEO of his company, I might as well. And I respected him so, so much. And I said, you know what, Dan, thank you so much. Actually, I'm like, I'm going to do it. And he said, all right, you should do like, you should do your thing. And I remember that moment so clearly. And a few months later, he went to Mount Everest and he died um, in the earthquake. And I, I had called him shortly before and I'd seen him right before he left for his trip. And I remember I told him that I quit my job and that I was really going to go for it. And, and at the time when I quit my job, everyone said, you can't do this. You've never even been a CMO, let alone a CEO. And these were, you know, senior leadership people who I really respected also telling me that I couldn't do it. But I remembered that promise that I'd given my friend. And I also, at this time had talked to so many different menstruators who like really, really wanted me to make something for them. 
And I just felt really called to keep my promise. And I remembered how much he believed in me. And I think that really helped me believe in myself, but you don't need a friend to pass away, to believe in yourself and to see in yourself what someone else can see. And so sometimes I think our friends and people in our lives can sometimes be the greatest messengers and and the, the negative ones can sometimes drown out the one or two positive ones. And so to anyone out there who's even remotely thinking about starting something, I just encourage people to go for it and do it. You never know what you might be capable of or how many lives you might be able to impact by following your dream. Yeah. I have the chills from that story. That was, uh, thank you for sharing that. And I'm so sorry about your friend. I'm sure that that was a really tough loss for you. Yeah. Thank you. It was. He's very much still with me. I think about him every week. Yeah. I have this theory that the people that believe in us and that truly love us, they become our like guardian angels. And they're just this like army or this team of people that are supporting us, you know, on a different level. So I I have the the feeling that he's very much behind so much of what you've been able to create since he kind of gave you the nudge you needed. Thank you. So I came to you to have this conversation because I'm a huge fan of your products. And I remember when a, a girlfriend told me about like, a different type of period care. I was like, what are you talking about? Like there's, there's tampons, there's pads, there's nothing in between, but she was a, she was a diva cup user. And so in being exposed to that type of period care, I actually decided to start using. And I can only imagine that you with, you know, all of this kind of confidence being built up now going to start this company. That's something that, you know, most people have probably never heard of have a huge uphill battle ahead of, and I, I think that from some of my research, what I found is that you actually ended up going to YC Combinator, which is like my perception is kind of like a Silicon Valley tech incubator that puts out a lot of incredible work. But my guess is if if you submit an application saying like that you are going to build this company flex a better for you period care company that it was it was kind of off the beaten path of what they typically would bring into their accelerator so to the extent that that i'm right wrong indifferent <laughs> otherwise i would love to hear you share a little bit about what that experience was like and and what the outcome was yeah One of the first things I tell people when they're thinking about starting a startup, or even if they've already started, if you're thinking about a venture-backed startup to go to ycombinator.com and look at their application. And even if you don't apply, I use their application to kind of write the first draft of my business plan to understand where the gaps were and understand if I were to go out and raise money one day, what are kind of the basic tenants that investors are looking for? And I still have that application and and I ended up, you know, altering it and changing it over time. And like the final application that we submitted where we got in is published on my medium. So anyone can go and see the answers and how I wrote those answers back in 2015 or 2016, 2016, when we first applied. And I think, you know, at the time YC was taking, I think fewer than a hundred companies per batch. They're taking a lot more now and they weren't taking a lot of consumer products. They weren't taking a lot of what they call hardware, both are hard to scale, both don't typically get the types of valuations that venture investors are looking for. But YC, I think it's very different. And I say that, by the way, because tech companies, you know, get usually 10x plus valuations on revenue, whereas consumer companies 
typically get less. But one thing that I really love about YC is they 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 want to know that you're solving a huge problem, that you're tackling a multi-billion dollar market, absolutely. But they do really care about seeing things that are different, that are different and founders that are solving problems differently. And they really do invest in the founder. I, I think a lot of venture investors do, but I think YC more than any other early stage investor has a very unique process and unique lens through which they see the world. And the other thing I love about them is you can like their YouTube channel, their blog, basically anything that you need, even if you're not going to go through YC, which I do recommend anybody apply. You can get a lot of helpful information for how to start your company. So the experience for me was overwhelmingly positive. I recommend any, again, any go and look at their criteria to see if you would, you know, fit in with what they're looking for, but but I recommend really anyone apply. And even if you don't apply, use the application to kind of build out that business plan if you're planning on raising venture capital at any point. So from my understanding with a like an accelerator program, it's kind of the design is to be like a compression algorithm for the first year of business where essentially you go through a multi-week process where they teach you a ton about entrepreneurship. I imagine you're you're building at the same time and it all culminates in, I think, like a demo day. Share mm-hmm. maybe a little bit on the experience and and like if you're willing, what some of your biggest aha moments were as part of that process. For sure. So I would say not all accelerators are created equal. We actually went th- we got money from two, but one was uh, one's called Amplify Los Angeles. And there's just less of a quote unquote program the way that YC is. They're set up a little bit differently. They were wonderful. Like a lot of their focus is helping us raise follow on capital after our seed round. YC is about grow, grow, grow. Understand your users, figure out how to grow, make sure that you have product market fit. Don't scale your business before you're ready. Just solid foundational principles that, that they kind of educate you on. And then you're kind of put in with other founders with similar types of types of businesses and you're learning from each other all at the same time. And the, the YC community is a very large, very rich community. They have many, many, many multi-billion dollar unicorns. <laughs> if you look at the list of companies they've invested in, I think that there's a lot of magic in the things that they teach. But again, they give away all that information for free on the internet. And I watched and read everything that I could before I even applied. I still got a lot more out of going through the program. But if you don't get in and you still want to learn, I just recommend, or you don't want to give up any equity, which is totally valid as well. Mm-hmm. Go and read all their things online. It's it's pretty extraordinary what they publish. Yeah. Maybe a follow-on question to that then is, so... I imagine at the time, like flex is like the seedling of an idea. You go through the accelerator program. And I do believe that like part of the criteria for being in their accelerator is you take on an equity investment from them if if that's like what it culminates in for you. How did that feel for you? And like what were the things that were going through your head as you graduated the program and and now had kind of, you know, given up a portion of of ownership in, in your business if if that's what happened? Yeah. I mean, to answer that question, I got to rewind a little bit and just say, I had bootstrapped my company as long as I possibly could. So I put about, I put over $50,000 worth of savings, basically like everything I could possibly scrape together 
to get the company as far along and get as much traction as possible. It's extraordinarily rare to raise money just off of an idea or to get into YC, even without just an idea, you've got to have like a little bit of traction. You have to find some kind of way to demonstrate traction. And at the point that I decided to take on venture capital, I was completely out of money. I had nowhere else to go. I had to manufacture my first 10,000 pre-orders product, but there's a long road to get those 10,000 pre-orders, right? And so you got to be really creative on how you're going to demonstrate traction and show that whatever it is that you're making that people actually want. It's actually a lot easier for, I think, like a B2B SaaS company or some kind of technology company versus a physical product company where you actually have to manufacture your own products. But there are ways... Like there are creative ways that you can problem solve that you, you got to get to. Um, the point that I decided to give away equity, I had read a few different books, like most notably, I think Venture Deals. I recommend that book to any early stage founder who's thinking about raising venture capital because it kind of teaches you the fundamentals of what all the different terms are and all the different ways that you can you can slice it. But I've been very, very conscientious through every step and stage, every time before we've taken on capital, what is the cost-benefit analysis for me, for the company, for whatever? And we needed over a million dollars to you know, make our manufacturing line and buy raw materials and like hard, hard costs. And I just had to be really scrappy then on the marketing side for our first two years to that 85% of our customer acquisition was organic, was not paid, right? But then I could take that 85%, you know, look how well we're doing when we're not paying for marketing to the next investor and say, okay, now I need money. We've done some testing. We know our cost of acquisition. This is how we're going to scale it. So it's kind of like taking things step by step and going in with eyes wide open about how much you want to give away. I think the more important, more often overlooked, not talked about thing about raising money is when you're giving away the equity, you're not only giving away ownership of your company, but you're losing ownership and control every step of the way. Mm -hmm. So talking to other founders, understanding benchmarks for different stages, like at your series B, typically you should still have X percent at least, but just thinking about like before you're giving away board observer seats or board seats or anything like that, just being smart on what kind of leverage that you have or don't have. Sometimes you don't have any leverage and you just got to take whatever offer they give you. And, and, you know, taking the money that you need and being ultra confident that you're going to be able to hit the milestones that you're promising these people, because otherwise it's, you're in for a rough ride. Yeah. Yeah. I think anybody that's like right about like the I think it's called like the founder's dilemma, right? Like really, really exciting to start Such a good book. business. Yeah. But, but there's a lot of like sexiness around raising money. And there's like a lot mm-hmm. of like not sexiness around what does that mean in terms of your obligation to scale the business to successful exit so that everybody can walk away winners and, and how do you protect yourself in that equation so that you also get to walk away a winner when you do everything that you set out to do? Yeah. Founder's Dilemma is that's yeah, that's another must read. Even if you just read Venture Deals and Founder's Dilemma, it's like <laughs> two very solid books to start out with. So maybe I, I think that we skipped over a, a little beat in this, in this, the typical path on, on this podcast. So 
typically we're like, okay, so you kind of get this nudge at night and then you decide, all right, I'm going to go for this business. Were you working full-time when you started Flex or like how did the actual inception of the business come about prior to, to going to YC? I didn't incorporate the company until after I quit my job full-time. I was doing you know, casual focus groups. I was doing tons and tons of market research. I was, I had a list of all the things that I didn't know how to do. I was like cold emailing experts on like FDA regulatory process and manufacturing supply chain. And the list goes on forever. I was educating myself for a couple of years and then quit my job. And then there's probably like another six month gap before I actually incorporated the company. And then we raised our first, and in that six month gap before I'd incorporated, I had tried fundraising and I just kept hearing no's because nobody wanted to invest in the idea because they didn't have enough traction. And I'm like, well, how do I have traction if they don't have a product? <laughs> it's a chicken or the egg. Like what, uh-huh. what do you want me to do here? But I think what YC saw in me is at the point that I had applied, I found like really creative, hacky ways to demonstrate progress and this and that. And I was very honest with them. And they told me transparently that there were a lot of period companies that had been applying around the same time. And like something interesting is happening in the market that you see that others are also seeing, but the way that you're going about doing things is very different. And we like that, you know, and that's, that's why, that's why we're moving forward with you. Yeah. So, so you mentioned that you, you kind of put $50,000 of your own money into the business. What were you like, how were you prioritizing the use of those dollars? Was it to create product? Was it to stand up, you know, website and get pre-orders? And then how did, you know, the, the YC investment take you to the next level and then the next investment take you to the next level or, you know, what different types of capital infusion were allowing you to grow and hit kind of key milestones? Yeah. Well, first I want to say that most people don't have $50,000 just, you know, sitting in their bank account. So I want to be very clear on that. I I had done a few consulting gigs and really scraped to get, put my apartment on Airbnb. Like I was really scraped, which my landlord found out about and I almost was evicted, but that, no, I don't recommend that. So I, I found really creative ways to scrape that together over many, many, many years. I understand that's a, not a non-trivial amount of money for anyone. I really prioritize prototyping, product development. I really prioritize, like there were some types of consultants that were specialists that I really needed to account for. And so a lot of the money went to those things in the early days. I wasn't paying for lawyers. I wasn't paying for uh, marketing. I stood up, you know, now there's Shopify. Shopify didn't exist at the time. Maybe maybe it did exist. It was not what it is today, whatever it is. I think we did like a website on, I don't know, one of those other turnkey like WYSIWYG websites. I would say at the point that we were in Y Combinator, we had raised... Like we have like a like a weird fundraising story because I've kind of like just pieced together tranches of money when we've needed it. Mm. I haven't when people are like, what stage are you? And usually they're like, I'm a series B, I'm a series C, I'm a series A, I'm a seed, whatever. We haven't really had those. Like we've done two priced rounds, but when you look at you know, a series B company and you look at what traction that we have, like our revenue and our growth and all those other things were like in a very different category. And also in 2021, people are raising $20 million series 
A rounds, which is just wild. And, you know, I founded the company in 2015. It was not, it was not that way. And I would say to anyone who's, you know, raising money, the, what served, what has served me well is I have only raised what I've needed when I've needed it. You don't want to wait until you have not enough runway and you like actually really, really need it, but you're kind of planning six to 12 months out. Okay. I see where we are. I know how much money we're going to need to get to that next milestone, but money also hasn't come very easily to me. So I like part of it is out of necessity. And part of it is I wanted similar to my personal life for the company to be financially viable as early as we possibly could. So we became profitable two less than two years after we launched the brand. I, that was my goal. I was just running for profitability. Mm-hmm. Profitability in 2020 and 2021 is now like a, a sexy word. It was a four-letter word. <laughs> so at the, in 2018, we became profitable. People were like, why? Why? But we still had growth. We had both. And so, but for me, that was financial freedom, you know, harkens back to my 19 year old self where I'm like, I can't always be on the teat of the VC, you know, and, and raising the round and running out of money every 12 to 18 months, which is what is kind of expected of you. You're charging for growth at all costs. I wanted to figure out a way to both grow and be profitable and kind of have control over my own destiny. So if at any time I couldn't raise money, but because it's hard to raise money for period products that I could always just rely on my own business and not have to worry about, you know, turning the lights off. One, I appreciate just your focus on profitability. That's something that, again, I think a lot of like VC backed businesses, it's just, well, we'll just raise the next round. We'll just raise the next round versus like, how can we cash flow this business so that we can reinvest our profits and, you know, and allow ourselves to kind of realize our potential with or without, you know, the next round. Two, I imagine that being, I hate, talking about this, but I think it is necessary to talk about like being a woman raising money. Like there's just the simple statistics that I think it's like less than 3% of VC dollars actually go to women, women founded companies. I bet that like, there's probably a much smaller percentage that goes to women period care companies. And, and I, I get the sense that you've been really thoughtful about the rounds that you've raised as you, as you shared, but also then who you were taking money from maybe speak on, on your journey, being a woman, you know, who, who's taken on VC dollars and also like how you thought about who you raised from and, and those relationships that you've built. Sure. I mean, again, everything goes back to leverage, like how much leverage do you have and, and, and you listed off a few things where you're automatically kind of operating from your back foot. And, you know, if I were a black woman, it would be even harder if I were, you know, you can, you can like keep listing all of the different things that make it very challenging to raise money. And so I think number one, just being really real with yourself and the statistics about what's actually out there. I had rose colored glasses on and was like, I'm not a female CEO. I'm just a CEO. I'm just a CEO founder. But then you really get out there and you're like, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is what everyone is talking about. And I don't like talking about it like a whole, whole lot. And I try not to think about it too much. I try to just focus on running a great business, but I do think it's important to be realistic. And then I think from there, you can kind of look for people who you have aligned values with if you have the agency to be able to choose which investors you put in your circle, you know, reference calls are really important. Like talking to other founders, really trying to dig in and understand 
how has this investor been there for you when things have gone sideways? Like what has their response been when you've delivered bad news? When's the last, you don't have to tell me what the bad news was, but tell me like when you delivered like the worst piece of news you've ever, how did they react? How have they shown up for you? How have they helped you? Because every investor markets themselves as being super helpful, super supportive, or so founder friendly because they're in sales too. You're selling them, they're selling you. You call another founder, they're not going to start talking smack about their board member. So you really got to try to like read between the lines. And that again is if you have, if you're fortunate enough to have a lot of agency. We've had times where we I have not had that much agency. And you know, we've had to take money from people that just come around, but thankfully. Like most people on our cap table are people that really are down for what we're doing. They believe in the mission. They believe in the vision. They believe in me as the founder, the CEO. And we're really fortunate for that. But yeah, I would just like really stay away from any kind of deals that stink terms that you're not comfortable with. Sometimes, you know, unless you're absolutely going to run out of cash, don't take it. Don't take a bad deal. Mm. Um, And if you have to take a bad deal, I would say really think it through and talk, talk it through with other people before you decide to do so. And to be clear, like there hasn't been a deal that I've taken that I haven't been comfortable with. We have been offered things where I've not been comfortable and I've walked away, which Mm -hmm. is really hard to do, but it's better to hustle harder and talk to more investors and try to get out there than take money from someone who you don't trust or you don't like, or doesn't believe in you because it will be a very big pain to have to deal with that person for, for a long, long, long time. Yeah. I think the, the stuff that I've read and and people that I've talked to that have raised, like everybody just looks at it as like a marriage. It's like, <laughs> do you, mm-hmm. do you want to end up married to this person that, you know, you may have had five bad reference calls for, but you're in a you know position where you could kind of use the cash and the answer is probably no every time, even though it could be really appealing to just go that route. Yeah. Well, I mean, something else you could do is, I I mean, I would probably, if I went back and looked, it's probably been, I don't even know, hundreds. I mean, also YC, you know, once you go through that process, I think Mm -hmm. we had over a hundred investors ask us for meetings after demo day, Mm -hmm. um, which was incredible. Uh, A lot of meetings. (laughs) That was like a lot of time, time, a very strong start, but you know, over the years, you have to understand you're going to hear no hundreds of times, mm-hmm. at least dozens of times. So if you have a bad deal in hand, the best thing to do is then to set up a ton more meetings and say, we have this offer. Mm. What do you got? Like, don't say who it's from. What do you got for me? Right. And, yeah. and that's how you go. And that's actually the best time to be able to go and raise money. Cause you can shop that around a little bit and try to see if you can get better terms or work with the person that you like a little bit better. Mm. Thank you for that advice for whoever's listening. Next question is, so building a business is tough, it, you know, <laughs> and, and really starting from, you know, the, the opportunities that were afforded you at a young age, like it was probably very, very, very tough for you. But I think that, you know, some, some people might say that scaling a business in, in many ways can be even tougher because you go from visionary founder with an awesome idea and some traction to, oh my gosh, now I'm responsible to investors. I'm responsible to people and their livelihood how do you think about your role as a leader and how has that changed since the beginning of the business? I am here to serve. And I know a lot of people, um, it's like the cliche thing to say, I guess, but I don't think that that has changed for me at all. Um, coming from a person that was very reluctant to start a business, the only thing that keeps me going is 
the love letters that we get from our customers. We have worked super, super hard to have a very different, very special values-driven culture at the Flex Company, which is also very hard and also very innovative. <laughs> so like doing a little bit too many things at the same time, maybe, but I really wanted to build a company that I would want to work for after having worked at so many different places. I learned things that I liked and, I, and the things that I didn't like. I think scaling a business requires a different skill set than starting a business and having an executive coach as early as I can afford one has been very, very helpful to me. Making friendships with other founders to kind of have people that will be very honest with you and will also share honestly with you of themselves is helpful as well. And just like continuing to sharpen my skills and my tools and my tool belt, ask for a lot of feedback from my team and and stay really close to customers and the team. But there's nothing really that can truly prepare you for scaling other than having a growth mindset. Something that in in your growth journey like really stretched you outside of your comfort zone and and what did you maybe learn from that? I'm not prepared for this question at all. I think you know so there's this another amazing book called The Hard Thing About The Hard Things mm-hmm. which is not only full of great advice even if you're not starting a company it's just a great book to read if you're in business. Ben Horowitz he talks about this idea, there's builders, there's scalers, and there's optimizers. And he talks about this idea that like, for you as an employee, you got to also figure out, are you a builder, are you a scaler, or an optimizer? As a CEO, are you a builder, scaler, or optimizer? For your team that you're hiring, which what stage are you in and what do you need for that stage? Mm-hmm. And the goal for you as a CEO is always to like, if you want to run the company forever, is to go from a builder to a scaler to an optimizer. He uses Mark Zuckerberg. Not, you know, I don't know how many people are big fans of Mark. I don't know him. So I'm not like saying he's amazing or anything, but he has uniquely been one of those few people that's like built the company, scaled it, and optimized it to what whatever it is today. That's extremely rare. And so you got to be honest with yourself as you're going along, like, am I good at this? Am I having fun? Am I getting this feedback? Am I changing? Am I evolving? Am I growing? And create like a plan for yourself about what point is it best for the company and best for you to kind of part ways. But I think like the challenging, like that I've known from the beginning, I think the more challenging thing for me is like, as the company is growing, you're hoping your employees are doing that too. The -hmm. people that you know, hack it really well at a five-person startup aren't necessarily the same people that are great at a thousand-plus person startup. And so you're trying to like teach them the skills and give them the training and give them the career development, give them all these things. That doesn't mean that there's an intersection of like what people want and what the company needs. Those don't always, you know, align over many, many, many years. And so I think that piece of it is really hard because sometimes you have to part ways with an employee is like going to an earlier stage company, or you know, they want to go into a different line of work that you don't have to offer at your, your own company, or any variety of, of different things that happen. And I think I've learned a lot from that experience, but it's also been surprisingly challenging because there's people involved and you care about people very much. Yeah. That is that's a really useful framework to kind of like put ideas and people through is like builder, scaler, optimizer. You are, are, I I get the sense kind of on that journey yourself, which uh, leads me to this next question. As you think about the future of the business, what are you most excited about? Uh, International expansion. 
Yeah. International expansion. There's been black markets that have cropped up all over the world where people are illegally importing our products and people mm-hmm. are writing us and like, oh my gosh, we need this here. We need this here. People are using it. We love it, please. And that is kind of the next stage of our journey. I imagine Flex not only being a household name in the US, but really helping people and solving problems for for menstruators all over the world. Like I said, we are creating a more comfortable period for everyone. And when I say everyone, I really do mean everyone. We've put so many years of R&D into our core products, and it's just a matter of getting them out into more people's hands. Yes. For those listening as a user, uh, their product is super differentiated. When I first started using period cups instead of tampons, it was really difficult to extract and that turned me off. And then when I found Flex, your I think it's intellectual property, like your patented technology just changes the game. So you guys are in, I think, CVS, Target, a ton of other retailers probably and going to be international soon, which means if you're listening and you're a woman and you're a menstruator, uh, or maybe maybe just a menstruator in general, you need to go check out their products. So yeah. last question, if there's a woman listening to this today who's completely inspired by you and the journey that you've been on, what's the one thing that you hope she takes with her from this episode? Get started. Just whatever it is, read one of those books that we recommended today, You know, create a, have a focus group, you don't have to call it focus group. I just just invite other women over for wine and cheese. <laughs> we would talk <laughs> about periods for hours. Whatever that looks like for you, literally just like start because it's never going to do itself. This is your dream. You're going to have fun. Even if you decide not to do it, even if whatever, like you don't want to be, you know, on your deathbed, hopefully 80 years from today thinking, gosh, I really wish I had done that thing. So just get started. If nothing else, it'll be a really fun hobby for a while. Yeah. But I think it'll be something big. So just get started. (laughs) I love that advice. That's just, it's literally one foot in front of the next. And sometimes it's Mm -hmm. started by, you know, listening to a podcast and then reading a book that was recommended. Yeah, absolutely. Lauren, if people love this, where can they come and hang out with you or the Flex Company? Well, thank you. You can find us on Instagram at flex. It's just F L E X. And there's a link in the bio to my personal profile. You can follow me on there, all of our journeys and adventures, and you can check out our whole suite of products. So Steph really likes the cup. We've got all different types of products um, on our website, flexfits.com. Thank you so much for being here. We so super duper appreciate you coming on the show and and sharing your journey. I know it's 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 a lot to go through and like talk about all of the experiences in a quick 45 minute segment, but I, I think people are gonna learn a lot. Well, thank you so much for having me. It means a lot. And I have to compliment you. Your your questions were very unique and very well researched. So I love what you're doing and I'm excited to see how much your podcast grows. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. Thank you so much for being here. If you loved this podcast, and I truly hope you did, make sure you're subscribed so you'll be the first to know every time we drop new episodes. And if you haven't already, head over to pmschoolpod.com and subscribe to our newsletter so we can keep you in the loop as we release new PM School resources, invites to events, and trips abroad. If you're feeling extra generous, please leave us a review because it really makes an impact on our ability to book epic guests and keep this mission in motion. 
Last but certainly not least, if you feel so moved, take a picture of yourself wherever you're listening and tell us what your biggest takeaways are by tagging us on Instagram at PM School Podcast. All right, until next time, go be epic. We see you. We support you. Cheers.